Good morning, church family. Hope and pray you are well. Uh, Listen, the Apostle Paul wonderfully sums up um, the way myself and Pastor Clint feel about you in our passage this morning in Philippians 4 verse 1. He says, My brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Listen, I know we're weary and we're tired, and uh, listen, we long for you. We long to be together. We long for you to be strengthened in the Lord. We long for you to grow in holiness, and we long for the day when we would be able to worship God together corporately uh, again. So we are praying for you, and we want to exhort you to stand firm in the Lord and in His grace. So if you have your Bibles, if you haven't turned there yet, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 1 through 9 this morning. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about this question. How would you describe your ideal moment of peace? I'll tell you some of mine. For me, an ideal moment of peace is going to a movie in a theater alone. I know that's kind of strange. That's my introversion showing. I love that very peaceful time for me. Or a family dinner where everybody is laughing and getting along and the kids are only using kind words with one another. Joyful, peaceful time. Or when the the kids are in bed and the dishes are done and the living room's tidied up and my wife and I can sit down and enjoy a nice quiet evening of conversation together. I'm sure you have a a few uh, peaceful scenarios in your mind. Now think about this. How would you describe a moment of chaos? For me, it would be going to a movie where someone is talking the entire time. That should be a crime, in my opinion. Or family dinner is interrupted by bickering and fighting and spilled drinks and the five-year-old who only eats pizza and chicken nuggets, right? Or think about just the reality of our present day. We are in a moment of complete and total chaos, aren't we? Can't leave the house without wearing a mask, or if you're not wearing a mask, you feel bad because you should be, or can't find toilet paper, or you have this ever-present fear of, will I get sick, or someone I love get sick. On top of that, we're, we're being constantly bombarded with news and information from so many different directions. We don't really know what to believe. It's chaos, isn't it? And if we're honest about our lives, both in, both in this crisis and, and throughout our entire lives, it's really a bit of a mixture of both scenarios, isn't it? It's moments of peace intermingled with chaos. But what if you could actually endure the latter with the inner sense of the former? What if you could walk through moments of chaos, however big or, or small, and as you're walking through that chaos, you had a deep and abiding sense of peace? And that sounds strange to us, and I think the reason it sounds strange to us is because we so often ground our peace in our circumstances. And our circumstances are constantly changing. Haven't we learned that in this season? But this unmovable peace is actually possible and is promised to us in our passage this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And so what we see as, as we walk through these verses is an invitation to what I would call holistic peace. It affects the whole person. And as we begin this final chapter and Paul's beginning to bring the letter to a close, he's exhorting God's people at Philippi and you and I as believers today to pursue peace. And as we walk through this, we'll see it in three ways. To pursue relational peace, 
verses two through five, to pursue peace through prayer, verses five through seven. And then finally, to pursue peace of mind in verses seven through nine. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time in his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who gives peace and you are the God of peace. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and hearts to the truth of your word today. God, we thank you that though the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God remains forever. So may we find peace in you as we walk through this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first thing we see in our passage that Paul exhorts us to is to pursue relational peace. After exhorting us to stand firm, Paul gives this command. And and really, in in verse 2, the the command is to stand unified. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now that phrase, agree in the Lord, is actually the same phrase used in chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul tells the church at Philippi to be of the same mind. It's a call to unity. And there was some sort of disagreement between these two women in the church. We don't know what the disagreement was, but we know it was serious enough for the Apostle Paul to call them out by name in the letter. He's not being harsh here, but we just, it just means it's, it's serious. It's affected the whole church. He had heard of it, even from a distance. And we also know it's serious enough for Paul to call a mature Christian, a, another peacemaker from within the church, to help these sisters in Christ Agree in the Lord. You see that in verse 3. He says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So the disagreement apparently was also hindering the mission of the church. These women once strived side by side with Paul as the church at Philippi was being planted They strived with him in gospel ministry, but now this was keeping them from effective ministry. Now, whatever it is, we know it wasn't false doctrine or Paul would have reprimanded one of them uh, or he would have called them out clearly because we see that he calls out false doctrine very clearly in chapter three. And so there are essential truths that are worth uh, dividing over, right? And standing firm in those truths, doctrinal truths. But this, this is not something essential, And whatever it is, Paul just simply says, listen, agree in the Lord. It's like he's saying it's time to move on and move past this. What he's essentially saying is we can't stand firm unless we stand together, right? Relational division in the church is a threat to the purposes of God for the church. So Paul says, pursue relational peace, stand unified together. I think about this time that we're in. Right? We're, we're facing potential situations that could cause divisions among the church, among followers of Jesus Christ as we walk through this COVID crisis. As the country is thinking about what it means, uh, trying to figure out how to reopen, so are our churches. And I'm sure you've, like me, heard all sorts of polarizing arguments toward either side. Right? We should move faster than we are. No, we should move more slowly. Well, well don't you care about the co- economy? Well, yeah, well, don't you care about the, the health of, of people? Right? Well, doesn't your position just reveal your political bias? Don't you just lean too far left or, or lean too far right? All sorts of things that as followers of Jesus Christ could easily cause division if we're not careful. 
And on top of this, the, the news outlets and the social media and all of the, all the conspiracy theories are just fueling the polarizing and demonizing nature of our sinful hearts, right? And so we need this exhortation. We need to hear Paul say, listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, agree in the Lord. We may disagree on certain things, on non-essential things, but we are all in on Jesus. We're all in on his gospel. We're all in on his glory and his grace. We're a family. Right? He says, your names have been written in his book. You're a part of God's family. So let's be gracious with one another. Let's honor the consciences of our brothers and sisters in Christ and let's stand unified. And Paul goes on to say, not only stand unified, but also rejoice together. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is a great memory verse, very short, very easy to to memorize. But think about the context here. It's actually rejoicing that's meant to be done together, not alone. It's meant to be done together as we agree in the Lord and strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. He's using repetition again to to emphasize. He's saying, again, I will say rejoice. The people of God should be marked not by infighting and by division, but by an indomitable joy in every situation. He goes on verse 5 to say, pursue pursue reasonableness, or, or we could say gentleness there. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, the ESV uh, uses the word reasonableness here. There's actually no exact English word to fully capture the idea of what Paul's getting at. He's talking about living in a gentle and understanding way with one another. John Calvin summarizes the thought this way. Let all that have to deal with you have experience of your equity and humanity. Or my favorite word comes from the scholar William Hendrickson. He translates this as let your big heartedness be known to everyone. I love that. And church, does that describe you? Paul says, this should be known to everyone, both inside and outside the church, that you're reasonable and gentle and gracious and kind. Do people look at your life and say, man, I I may think they're crazy for this Jesus thing, but goodness, do they walk side by side with their church? They're pursuing relational peace. They rejoice together in chaos. They are a big-hearted people. I see this is attractive to a watching world. When that happens, we get to come along and say, yes, we're a big-hearted people because we have a big-hearted Savior, Jesus Christ. We're in Him. We rejoice in Him, and you can be in Him too. Paul's exhorting us to pursue relational peace together. And as we do that, we're holding out this big-hearted gospel to a watching world. And secondly, we see the exhortation to pursue peace through prayer. Look at the second half of verse 5. It says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, this phrase, the Lord is at hand, means two things. First, that Jesus is going to return. The Lord's coming back. And his return in the future, whenever that will be, is is meant to invite us to draw near to him in the present. As we talked about last week, it's to live in light of the end, right? But second, it also means, the phrase, the Lord is at hand, is that God is present with his people. Therefore, we should not be anxious. It's meant to give us confidence in the midst of chaos. And he goes on to give a very clear command in light of the Lord's presence, verse six, do not be anxious about anything. 
Now, what does it mean to be anxious? What is, an, what is anxiety? Well, anxiety, we could define it as an emotional response to a perceived future threat of something valuable to you, right? So we could use the word here in this context, worry. Do not worry. So for example, can I pay those upcoming bills? Will I, will I still have my job in six months? Will, will my child be okay? Will I get sick? Will someone I love get sick? What's, what's going to happen? All of those are everyday examples right now of scenarios that we're tempted to respond to with anxiety and worry. But what's so interesting about this word is that Paul actually uses it elsewhere in a positive way. In fact, he uses it twice in Philippians in a positive way. So you could actually say there is a good kind of anxiety, though I think a better word there would be a concern. So, for example, Philippians 2.19, Paul is talking about Timothy, and he says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest, that's the same word for anxiety, a genuine interest in your welfare. Or later on in Philippians chapter 2, he says, I'm all the, eager, the more, uh, all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So Paul's talking about here a, a healthy concern for the well-being of others. Their spiritual concern. He's spiritually anxious for them. We, use this, we could use this word in a number of ways. I'm, I am anxious to gather with God's people again. Or you may say, I'm anxious to see my friend come to saving faith in, in Jesus. Or I'm, I'm anxious to see you know, the Red Sox destroy the Yankees at Fenway Park. Whatever it may be. That's a, that's a concern over something in the future, but it's not necessarily sinful. Right? In verse 6, Paul's talking about something different. He's talking about a worry that fails to acknowledge the sovereign goodness of God in every situation. And thus, in response, that anxiety leads us to live as if we're sovereign over our own lives. That's what Paul means when he says, do not be anxious. Jesus teaches on this in Matthew chapter 6, after talking about anxiety surrounding uh, our provision. Listen to what he says. He says, for the Gentiles, read there, the non-believers, seek after these, all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Paul says, in the same line, same vein as Jesus, we're not to worry in this way. We're not to be anxious and forget the sovereign goodness of God about anything. After all, the Lord is at hand. He is present with us. Now we have to be careful about the tone that we read here, because if we read this wrongly, we can imagine God sort of standing over us, wagging his finger, saying, man, I told you to trust me. I told you not to be anxious. Now you're wavering in your faith again. But this isn't a harsh rebuke. This is a gentle invitation. I think about something that happened this week. One of my, my kids woke up in the middle of the night in tears, anxious and fearful because of a nightmare. Now, in that moment, I would be an unloving father if I said, son, why are you crying? I told you there's nothing to worry about. I told you they're just dreams. I told you I'm right here. Go back to bed. That would be ungracious. Right? That would be harsh. That wouldn't be gentle. So what did I do? No, I invited him into my embrace. I told him I loved him. I told him that it would be okay. I prayed with him and helped him go back to sleep. And friends, that's the heart of Christ 
for weak and anxious people like you and me. He's not wagging his finger at us. Of course we're anxious right now. The world as we know it is chaos. But Jesus says, don't be anxious. Instead, in everything, come to me in prayer. Let your requests, your supplications, your desires, your wishes be made known to me. He also exhorts us, Paul exhorts us here to, to pray, not just to supplicate, to let our requests be made known to him, but also to pray with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Why? Because God knows that when we're anxious, we tend to so zero in on one problem that we blind ourselves from the immense blessing that we already have. So God's saying, listen, gratitude is like medicine for the soul. If you pause and praise God and thank Him in the midst of your anxiety, you'll be reminded of the sovereign goodness of God to you. See, friends, prayer is the unburdening of the soul to God. See, we would be exhausted if a friend came to us and just verbally dumped out all of their troubles at once. Right? Just everything from the past, everything, all the pains and struggles, and they just verbally, we, didn't even, we couldn't even respond. They just dumped them on us. We would be so overwhelmed. We'd be emotionally exhausted. We would be at a loss as to how to help. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus says, that's what I long for. Come to me. Pour out your anxious heart in prayer, not with refined or precise eloquence, not with reservation, not with neat little requests, a list of requests. Just come to me and pray and pour out your heart. Unburden your soul. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Psalm 55, 22. Or as Paul says in verse seven, he says, listen, when you do that, here's the promised result. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say all your circumstances will suddenly become easy. Uh, you'll, you'll immediately have all of your questions answered. You'll automatically get everything you, you've asked for. No, he doesn't say that because prayer is not a mechanical process. It's an intimate relational connection. We're not talking to a machine that we drop quarters in to get something back. We're talking to a person. See, the promise that God gives us is something much greater. God gives us what he knows we need, not what we think we need. And so he promises this supernatural peace. It surpasses all understanding. Because when people see it, they say, there's no way in this situation of chaos that persons should be at peace. It's supernatural. Now, I've found in my own life that one of the greatest ways the Holy Spirit brings this peace to my heart and soul in prayer is by reminding me of what I already know. Simply that at the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ, who is our peace. That since we've been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, Or as Paul says in Colossians 1.20, He has made peace for us by the blood of His cross. William Hendrickson puts it this way. He said, peace is the smile of God reflected in the soul of the believer. It's the heart's calm after Calvary's storm. It is the firm conviction that he who spared not his own son will surely also, along with him, freely give us all things. Church, are you pursuing peace through prayer in this anxious time? 
Are you unburdening your heart to him? This is, this is our privilege in Christ. The circumstances may not change in the way we hope or expect, but you will gain the smile of God reflected on your soul. That's something much greater. And then now this leads us finally to number three, pursue peace of mind. This peace, Paul tells us, will, second half of verse seven, it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul uses a, a play on words here. Remember, he is uh, under, uh, he is in prison, surrounded by Roman guards, right? constantly under their watch. But prison guards, they're, they're primarily trying to keep prisoners from getting out, right? But this kind of guarding is that Jesus promises actually keeps outside intruders from getting in, right? Paul is saying God's peace will mount guard at the door of your heart and mind. He's going to keep untrue thoughts and desires from corroding your inner being. That's a promise that Jesus gives us. But notice also that we have a part to play as we pursue this peace of mind. This is a repeated theme all throughout Philippians. We've seen it all over, right? The Christian works out the salvation that God has worked in. We press on because Jesus has made us his own. And here we pursue peaceful thinking, right thinking, because Christ's peace guards our thinking. That's what verse 8 calls us to do. Look at verse 8. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, the language here is not just devoting some thought here or there to these things, but thinking continually about these things. This is what should mark the mindset of every Christian. You see, we're always thinking. That's unavoidable. But the question is, are we thinking passively or are we thinking actively? See, passive thinking is unintentional. You just sort of fill your mind with whatever comes along. And here, here's the problem with that. Our enemy is never passive. So if we are, pa- are passive, we've let our guards down and our mind is being filled with untruths. You see, our, our culture holds up this open-mindedness as one of the highest virtues, right? We're constantly being bombarded with all these other ideas, and we're told that it's never really good to close on one of them. We have to be open-minded. But as G.K. Chesterton said, he says, I am incurably convinced that the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. See, Chesterton and Paul both here are calling us to active and intentional thinking. So imagine with me for a moment that over the next week, every thought that you had was recorded. And then at the end of the week, you received a printout with a list of words that summarized your thoughts. Now, I know what you're thinking. Of course, this would be a mess, right? We're sinners. So thank God for making peace with us through Christ. Thank God for his his grace. Yet, according to Paul, our thought life should be increasingly summarized by these things in verse 8. So imagine that printout and ask yourself, would it list truth more than falsehood in your thoughts? Would it list honor more than dishonor? Would you be thinking more about what's morally pure or impure? What's, what's lovely to God or what mars God's beauty? 
what's commendable and exemplary to others, or what's shameful? Would you be thinking more and more about the excellencies of Jesus or about the fleeting pursuits of this world? And then the the summary phrase, worthy of praise. Are we thinking about what's worthy of praise before God? We're to fill our minds with these things. Now, practically, how do we do this? The answer is simple, but it takes a lifetime of practice. We must immerse ourselves in the truth of God's word. If we want to think like God wants us to think, we must be consumed with his word. Not just pastors, not just bookish people who love to read, right? All of us should be Bible people. Listen to this illustration that Charles Spurgeon gives on this topic. He says, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we've taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historical facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language. And your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. Friends, that's how we transform our minds. It's through the word of God. And there are no shortcuts here, right? This takes lifelong, slow, continual Bible immersion. And notice this. Notice that the result is holistic. It affects the peace of the whole person. We don't just think on these things, but verse 9, right thinking leads to right practice. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Paul was an example of this. Now practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You hear that? We don't just get the peace of God, but we get the God of peace himself. And so if we, if we think on these things, think about all three of these exhortations to pursue. If we think on these things and pursue this peace of mind, we'll be far more likely to live and walk and pursue relational unity. Why? Because our lives are shaped by Christ. Our love for others is shaped by His Word. Or we'll be quick to pursue peace through prayer. Why? Because we're so immersed with the thoughts of God that we know that the God of peace longs for us to come and unburden our souls to Him. And we will, church, we will stand firm in unmovable gospel peace, whatever chaos comes our way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the promise of your word. It's not a suggestion, it's not a maybe, it's a promise that your peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So God, would you, in the power of your Spirit, help us to unburden our souls to you. God, would our minds be filled with the truth of your Word. Will we pursue relational unity with one another. And Father, we are in a time that is so chaotic. We, We have so many questions and so little answers. So would you rest our hearts firmly on the truth that we know you,
the God of peace. Therefore, we have no need to be anxious. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.